Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Look up any national news outlet and you're sure to be bombarded with stories about the mounting legal troubles of our former president. You can make your decisions and assumptions at will. Regardless, the fact remains that scandals are attention grabbing. A political scandal gets even more eyes than Hollywood disgrace. And it makes sense. When elected leaders are involved in scandal, that means they broke not only the law, but the public's trust and faith. Our state has been rocked by scandal more than a few times. Later this hour, we'll sit down with three writers to learn about some of the most crooked, double-dealing, and nefarious stories of our state's history. And speaking of Tennessee state government, stay tuned to WPLN throughout the week to hear the latest coverage of the special legislative session on public safety. Our reporters are at the Capitol, and we'll bring you updates throughout the session here and on our website, WPLN.org. But first, the League's Cup final took place in Nashville Saturday night. It was somewhat surprising that Nashville made the final, and as their reward, they got to play Lionel Messi. WPLN producer Cindy Abrams, Cynthia Abrams, pardon me, headed to Geodas Park ahead of the game to talk to fans. And no offense to our hometown team, Nashville SC, but we'll get to the result of the game in a minute. The reason why so many people had their eyes on Nashville was because of the great Lionel Messi. So, Cynthia, welcome back to the show. And tell us, what was it like to be in that environment? Well, Cleo, thanks for having me. And it was pretty electric. You know, while Nashville SC supporters definitely showed up to support their home team, the crowd did look a little different than a typical home game. Mm. Amidst the sea of blue and gold Nashville SC jerseys, there was an unusual number of jerseys bearing the name of their opponent, Messi. Mm -hmm. I even saw a number of fans wearing an Argentinian or Miami Messi jersey with a Nashville SC hat or scarf on top. So people were excited for two reasons, to see their home team in contention for what would have been Nashville SC's first major tournament trophy and to have one of soccer's all-time greatest players playing here in Nashville. Yeah, so what did supporters have to say? So I spoke to fans of all kinds. A lot of Nashville SC fans were cheering for their team, like one fan I spoke to, Lennon. Who do you think's going to win tonight? Hi, Hawk to Nashville. You yeah. Nashville? Yeah. Do you think they will win? <laughs> yes, because before the Messi goal, Nashville played better, you know, much better. But Messi made goal. Yeah, I hope they tie right now before the first time finish. But there were also a fair amount of Miami fans who had traveled to Nashville for the game. And some Nashville fans for the League's Cup final had switched allegiances. Hmm. That included one kid I talked to, Sergio Gutierrez, who was watching the game from outside the gates um, he was wearing a Nashville jersey and usually roots for Nashville. But he talked to me about the expensive tickets and switching allegiances. It's, it's too many money. That's why I can't go in. Are you okay listening out here? Yes. Who are you cheering for? Messi. 
Yes. I don't know why I have a mush bowl. <laughs> you know, I had someone contact me over the weekend asking if I knew of folks interested in going to the match. And the cost of tickets was like rent, Cynthia. It's too damn high. Now, you know, how many other folks did you run into who had issues with the ticket prices? Yeah, so like Sergio said, tickets were expensive. Um, In the days leading up to the game, prices skyrocketed. The highest price ticket rang in at almost $8,000, and the cheapest ticket was in the hundreds. Wow. So as I waited outside the stadium, I was not alone. A lot of these fans who couldn't afford tickets for this game showed up to listen and peek in through the gates at the big screen. So a lot of people trying to get in, and it was also not easy easy at all for journalists to get in, press pass or not. How did that go for you? So the quest for the credential, as it was aptly titled in the WPLN newsroom, was ultimately successful. So I did make it inside, but it was pretty difficult um, and extended well into the first half. But this gave me a chance to hang out outside for 45 minutes or so with those fans I mentioned and listen. um, And eventually I got to watch the game from the concourse. Okay, so this was a very, very important game, but not part of their regular season, which will resume soon. Tell me, what is the League's Cup? So the League's Cup is a football tournament that brings together all MLS, that's Major League Soccer, teams, um, which are all based in the United States and Canada, as well as teams from La Liga, a Mexican league. So to reach the final, Nashville beat Minnesota and a team from Monterey, Mexico. Okay, so they made it to the final. And as a lot of you already know, they lost in a heartbreaking penalty shootout. But Cindy, how good of a game was it? It, it was a nail-biter. You know, Miami, yes, it was messy, scored pretty early on in the 23rd minute. But Nashville played really well. They matched Miami's goal in the second half with a header from Fafa Picot, and neither team scored again, which meant that the game went to penalties. And this is where fans were really on the edge of their seats because there ended up being 11 rounds. Wow. When finally the goalkeepers stepped up, Miami's Drake Callender blocked Nashville keeper Elliot Panico, and Miami came out victorious. Did Messi make a difference in the penalty shootout? Definitely in the game and the shootout. You know, he scored that first and only goal for Miami and he was the first to step up during the penalties along with Hani Mukhtar for Nashville side. Um, And they both scored. Okay, so you mentioned that the regular season will resume soon. How is our hometown team, Nashville SC, how they're doing and what's next up for them? So they're doing well. They are currently ranked fourth in their conference and their next game is against their rivals from Atlanta this coming weekend. Um, So they're in their home stretch and they actually will have an opportunity to avenge their loss and come head to head with Messi again. They're scheduled to play Inter Miami another time. That's next Wednesday in Miami. Let me ask you this. You like sports, right? Yes. How many times have you had the opportunity to see a legendary player at their sport live? This may be the first. Yeah. It was pretty exciting. Excellent, excellent. It's WPLN. That is WPLN's news reporter, producer, pardon me, Cynthia Abrams. Cynthia, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Cleo. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn some of the history of political corruption in Tennessee when we visit the story of our former governor, Ray Blanton. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back.
I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. In one of his last acts as governor of Tennessee, Ray Blanton, a target of a federal investigation of an alleged parole selling scheme, has cut the sentences of a number of murderers and other convicts. Bruce Hall has the details. The FBI has filed affidavits for the federal grand jury saying that Governor Ray Blanton either had knowledge of or participated in a scheme in the governor's office to sell pardons to state prisoners. With only four days left in office, Blanton stunned the state with a middle-of-the-night announcement that he had granted executive clemency to another 52 prisoners, including 26 murderers. And he says he is not through yet. That was a clip from CBS News broadcasted on January 15th, 1979, featuring the legendary Walter Cronkite and reporter Bruce Hall. They reported on the activities of Ray Blanton, former governor of Tennessee. As you heard, he granted clemency to 50, count them 50 prisoners while in his last few weeks of office. This news was shocking to the public in Tennessee and across the nation. Blanton's actions caused great concern with lawmakers and law enforcement. So much so that they took an action that had never been done before in American history. My next guest knows all about the moves, and he wrote a book about it. Keel Hunt is the author of Coup, the day the Democrats ousted their governor, put Republican Lamar Alexander in office early, and stopped a pardon scandal. He's also a columnist for the Tennessean. Keel, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Great to be here. Really appreciate it. You know what I love about that clip? Even the great Walter Conk Cronkite had a stumble from time to time. <laughs> makes you, As a broadcaster, it makes you feel pretty good. Now, we're here talking about Governor Ray Blanton. This is really quite the story. Can you give us some quick background on who Ray Blanton was? Sure. Well, um, the, the, the ouster of Governor Blanton in, in January 1979 was certainly not the first scandal in Tennessee, uh, state capital, and it, it, it was not the last, but uh, it got the attention of the country, as your Cronkite uh, clip uh, indicates. Uh, and it, it, it's, there, were, there was a lot that was uh, of, of great interest to the FBI just as soon as Governor Blanton took office in 1974, and they never lost their attention on his time in office. Uh, so much so that when he uh, uh, approached the final couple of months in his time, uh, he um, he was removed from office because of things that were going on, and they were uh, they the um, the leaders of Blanton's own party as well as the feds were highly interested in what else he might do before he left. So uh, the the sort of end of the nutshell is that. Uh, his successor, um, who'd been elected the previous November, Lamar Alexander, um, was sworn into office uh, early, three days early because that's the only way the authorities could figure out how to remove Blanton from power because they were very concerned that there might be more pardons and, and clemencies coming. All right. So take me back in time a little bit. What was the political landscape in Tennessee like in the 70s? Well, it's in, in many respects, Khalil, it was just the opposite of what it is now in terms of political representation. Uh, there were virtually no Republicans mm. in the state capitol. Uh, at that time, uh, all three of our statewide elected officials, the governor and the two U.S. senators, were, uh, were, were, um, were all Democrats uh, up until um, 
1968 when Senator Howard Baker was elected U.S. Senator. Um, the, uh, the, the, the both houses of our state legislature were overwhelmingly Democratic in their majorities. Therefore, the two speakers were both Democrats. And our congressional delegation was, um, uh, was uh, predominantly Democrat. I think there was only one Republican in the delegation from Tennessee. And today, it's just the opposite. Mm-hmm. So you have um, <clears throat> you know, what we commonly call the supermajority. Uh, Republican uh, is, uh, has, has evolved since then. And most of that transition occurred in the uh, the early aughts, you know. Okay. Now, Blanton, what was his reputation like early on in his political career? Well, he was um, he had been a, uh, a a U.S. congressman from West Tennessee. <clears throat> He'd been in the legislature before that. Uh, he never really distinguished himself. Um, and in 1974, he uh, ran for governor. Um, I, I remember there were 12 uh, Democrats in that primary. There were four Republicans. Um, but the, we, we still don't have a runoff law in Tennessee. So Blanton became the Democratic nominee for governor um, with uh, 23 percent of the vote mm. in that primary. And, you know, which on one level is crazy, but on the other level, that's the that was the system. And he became the nominee. Meanwhile, Lamar Alexander became the Republican nominee, and they faced each other that November. Um, and so um, Blanton won. I mean, he, he was probably the, the best-known name, you know, in all that. And, uh, and meanwhile, um, I mean, Alexander will tell you today that that also became the fall when President, uh, when President uh, Ford— Mm-hmm. Pardon President Nixon for the Watergate crimes, and um, you, you couldn't, uh, virtually couldn't find a, a, a traditional Republican voter anywhere in the state uh, who who uh, who voted for, uh, you know, the the Democrats or, or the Republican Party. There was so much, you know, uh, upsetting. Uh, you know, concern about the, the what Watergate had done, what it meant, and so Alexander. It's not the only reason he lost that election in '74, but he, um, you know, he lost. Then he he decided uh, between then and the next election, 1978, to try again. Now, for Blanton's governorship, how did Tennesseans view it? Was he popular? Was he effective? Well, I, he, I think his. Uh, People would say now, looking back, that he was effective in some respects. He put a big emphasis on agricultural exports. He had, he had grown up in West, you know, sort of rural West Tennessee, and had gone to University of Tennessee at Martin and had that whole background. and uh, And he emphasized uh, uh, agricultural products and so forth. But um, you know, I, he, he didn't distinguish himself in most of the common ways. He was not a bold policymaker. Uh, he, he basically ran a, uh, an administration. Now, there were plenty, let me hasten to say, there were plenty of good people in the Blanton administration from, uh, that took office in January 75. Most of the trouble that ensued was in the governor's office mm-hmm. and, um, you know, where um, the governor's legal counsel uh, as part of the FBI investigation uh, was, uh, was arrested in uh, 
in December of 78, um, Blanton's still in office um, with uh, with cash in his pocket. I mean, the FBI uh, had, had, had found money on him that uh, it turned out it was sort of meant to go to um, as a payoff for one of the clemency scandals. Mm. People by this time were being let out of prison. And you mentioned the numbers, the, you know, 50 and so forth. Um, you know, convicts were being let out of prison for all the wrong reasons. And the, most of those reasons involved money. Blanton's um, security, this head of his security detail uh, was a lieutenant on the Tennessee Highway Patrol. He was arrested uh, the same day. And the governor's parole officer, uh, who reported to the legal counsel, was arrested uh, with a, um, uh, he was about to board a plane at the National Airport going to Memphis, mm. where he was taking clemency documents as sort of the, the completion of the uh, payoff for a particular prisoner. And that was stopped in its tracks. So wow. that's what set in motion the, the, all the worry on the part of um, the authorities, uh, FBI, U.S. Attorney, State Attorney General, that led to the early swearing in of Alexander okay. on the night of January 17th, 79. Okay, now you mentioned that Blanton was on the FBI's radar essentially from the time he took office, and you just told a little, a little, a little bit about the big scandal right now, but, you know, there were other ones he was involved in, you alluded to. What else was he involved indeed, with, indeed, scandal-wise? Well, uh, I, I interviewed a, um, uh, a former FBI agent who said, Keel, you know, I, I understand most of the news media at the time gave attention for the, to the, uh, uh, the pardon and parole scandal, which the news media uh, around here began to refer to as the clemency for cash scandal. This former agent said, look, I understand all the interest in that. It's, it's, it was awful. But there were plenty of other um, uh, kinds of corruption, uh, he, he went on to characterize. Uh, there, uh, highway construction, bid rigging, mm. which is illegal. Uh, governor's brother um, went to prison over that. Um, Governor Blanton himself went to prison uh, over something not related at all to the clemency for cash scandal, but to the uh, uh, improper handling of liquor store licensing. Hmm. So you had all of this surplus cars were being. So, you know, some people said at the time that uh, state government in Tennessee is open for business and anything's for sale. Now, mm. yeah, okay, that's that's quite the quote and seems that Blanton had his hands in every little seedy pot and plot that one could think of and this big scandal is more like this cauldron yes. that he's stirring up. You know, you mentioned that the authorities, the FBI, the US attorney and local lawmakers were really concerned with his actions. Why were they concerned about him pardoning so many people? Who were incarcerated at that, that time? Well, for one thing, the activity on January 17th, the, the negotiations between uh, the U.S. attorney, the state attorney general, Alexander and his people, and uh, and and the speech to two speakers, um, uh, they, they had decided all that had to happen in private because they didn't know what else Blanton might do. By this time in his uh, short administration. He had become um, erratic. He had a drinking problem. 
he would be uh, he would be drunk by the middle of the afternoon. Mm. They didn't know what he might do next, and possibly out of spite, should he get word. Um, I mean, there was concern that uh, as long as he was governor, uh, he was in control of the Highway Patrol, uh, the National Guard, and that if it came down to it, he might deploy one or the other or both uh, to help him hold on to his office. Wow. And that suddenly, if if Alexander was, in fact, to be sworn in at 6 p.m. that night, which he was, uh, we could wind up all in the news, all, national news all over again because t- Tennessee would uh, unfortunately have two governors and everybody would have egg on their face yeah. other than, um, you know, and to say nothing of what other kind of wrongdoing might occur because he would be governor until the Saturday of that week. This is now Wednesday evening. And uh, they didn't know what he might do. I'd like to introduce my next guests. They've written a new book about political scandals in our state's history. Eric Schelzig and Joel Ebert are the co-authors of Welcome to Capitol Hill, 50 Years of Scandal in Tennessee. Eric, Joel, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So when you hear this story about Ray Blanton, what comes to your mind, Eric? Well, he was sort of the inspiration for the for this book that that we did. I mean, the uh, Joel, when he was in the Tennessee, and ended up uh, doing a retrospective on this, and uh, and we decided that you know there's all kinds of scandals that have happened in Tennessee over the years, some of which we covered, and some of them are before our time. But uh, figured it was time to to write them down so they don't get forgotten. All right, Joel, what do you think when you hear when you hear about Ray Blanton and his activities? Yeah, I mean, uh, he was somebody that was a, a gregarious character, right? There's many politicians that you see today that are quite lively figures who uh, feel they can't do anything wrong, and uh, he was somebody that wasn't really afraid of uh, pushing back against the media, and so I think that again rings true in this politically charged environment that we're in today. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking this hour about Tennessee's history with political corruption with authors Keel Hunt, Eric Shelzig, and Joel Ebert. You can share your comments with us at This Is Nashville. Now, Keel, you had an up-close-and-personal look because at the time you were Lamar Alexander's speechwriter. What were you experiencing? Well, uh, the... uh I was not in the room when the uh, agreement was made to swear Alexander in early. Um, I mean, some very important and effective uh, uh, staff members were. Uh, I I was just off doing something else. And when when it went down that evening, this is on Wednesday night, January 17th of 79, uh, I was, uh, uh, that was a Wednesday, I was out at Vanderbilt helping to kind of team teach a seminar uh, and every Wednesday, and uh, this whole thing went down while I was out there. I got back to the um, transition headquarters. By this point, of course, Alexander had been elected and was in the process of assembling his uh, his cabinet, his new administration. And I went by the transition office, and the fellow sitting there watching TV, he was the only one in the office, and he says, do you know what's happened? And I did not. So... Um, I'm kind of proud of the research I was able to do with the help of 100 plus, you know, interviewees mm-hmm. assembling the story. But uh, I was I was not there. I had gotten to know Alexander pretty, pretty darn well, you know, and, and, and became a, a member of his staff. And so in, in that way, I, for the next four to six months, you know, everything was about how to sort that out, how to how to prepare the 
the new Alexander administration to be in office, uh, it was incumbent on him, for example, to to work uh, very closely with the Democratic leadership in the in the legislature, and uh, and that's part of the story, you know, the ensuing story. Um, and I developed a lot of respect for Speaker Ned McCorder, for example, and Lieutenant Governor John Wilder. They're both gone now. Now, you know, one of the people that Blanton pardoned was Roger Humphreys, who was convicted of killing his ex-wife and her boyfriend in a really gruesome murder, if you go back and read about it. His father was a political associate of Blanton's. So, Joel, what was the reaction to Humphreys being released and given a job with the state as a photographer? It was uh, actually came out um, the the arrangement of him being a state photographer was when he was still uh, in prison. And it was an arrangement that was highlighted by the Tennessee Journal uh, at the time. And the reaction was just shock and awe. People were confused why there was this special arrangement. Um, then you heard the governor basically defend Roger Humphreys in an interview that was very combative. He called him a fine young man. Uh, and that led to a lot of other people being uh, concerned about what he might do. Blanton vowed to uh, potentially pardon him. And you saw, you know, a back and forth. He kind of backpedaled at one point. Then he reasserted that he, he had plans to do that. Uh, and you had, you know, John J. Hooker at the time say, uh, you know, we, we can't have this. There were all kinds of people, Keel, that uh, I'm sure you remember were, were really, uh, really hyper focused on that issue because, you know, uh, Roger Humphreys was not a fine young man. Mm-hmm. Now, now, days before Lamar Alexander was to be inaugurated, this quick and secretive move that Keel has recounted for us a little bit was made by groups, including the U.S. attorney at the time. Eric, what does that level of secrecy with law enforcement and lawmakers that they were involved with, what does that tell you about how worried they were? Well, you know, of course, as a journalist, uh, I can only imagine it would have driven me crazy at the time to not be in on what was going on. As my understanding is the the press corps was generally aware that things were happening and were told to stand by and were around. And I'm sure Kilo could talk more about that uh, from his perspective. But um you know, the fact that they all got together and across, especially across party lines to hammer out this deal and to do it uh, sort of under the cover of darkness speaks to just how important they felt it was to, to avoid uh, more sort of hardened criminals getting out on the street uh, just because, you know, Blanton wanted to and might have been getting money for it. Now, hardened criminals getting out on the street. Kill, were there any people behind the bars that were also being considered by Blanton's team and he and his team for clemency that lawmakers were really, truly worried about? Well, uh, probably more so than lawmakers because they were not really in the loop of what was going down, but more, so, uh, but, but rather the law enforcement, the U.S. attorney and, and, and FBI and so forth. And they were concerned that others might be released. There were certain persons of interest among the uh, prisoners that they, uh, for whatever reason, thought might be um, susceptible to um, you know, um, a corrupt release. Um, and there were there was even a thought at the time that um, that these people were capable of anything, that the the uh, Blanton inner circle uh, might even have uh, James Earl Ray, mm. the assassin of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who at that time, uh, Ray, was in um, a, a Tennessee prison in the East State, that he might be possibly released. And there's an interesting episode in my book about how they uh, came to fear that. And they thought, well, if, if, 
if he could, if he might be released. And they asked a fellow who was um, an informant for the FBI uh, in a um, in an interview situation. Uh, asked, uh, they said, well, wh- well, how far could this go? Uh, what about who who is the hardest, meanest prisoner? And he named it one or two, and they said, well, what about James Earl Ray? This is the undercover FBI agent asking mm-hmm. this question. And the fellow in the uh, interview room um, is in a motel in Memphis being recorded. And uh, he said, well, that's a hot one. He said, I, I don't think we could pardon him and get away with it. Mm-hmm. But, but maybe we can help him escape. Wow. And to this day, Khalil, I mean— my blood runs cold. You know, I mean, these people were capable of anything. They were uh, shameless. They were corrupt. Yeah. You know, and this, here we are. So. And in your book, you reported that they were selling these pardons for about $25,000 a pop at the time. Yeah. There was one that w- went for about 90000 Wow. And that I learned. And um, I mean, the layers of this scandal, if you know, uh, were almost unlimited. Um, so, and you know, since you mentioned that a lot of the, uh, democratic delegation leadership, they were Democrats in office. They worked together with the incoming governor, Lamar Alexander, the U S attorney and law enforcement to look over the rules, to decide to remove, to remove Blanton from office early. These are Democrats removing another Democrat, people that Blanton is friends and political allies with. What did, what did that tell you about the importance of what the move they were making and the political climate at the time? Well, first of all, it said worlds to me about the value of uh, inter-party cooperation, in the, in, even in the worst situations, and this arguably was that. Uh, Speaker Ned McCorder, uh, who actually became governor himself later on following Alexander, uh, was uh, of the of the highest character, and he was a very different type personality from Alexander, uh, and yet they were able to fashion a common ground, and um, I believe that affected their capacity to work together successfully across the aisle uh, over the following eight years, whereupon McCorder became governor. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, working successfully across the aisle these days. I don't know if we have so much of that. And let me ask you this, Eric and Joel. Do you think something similar could happen today? I mean, would we have this level or that level of political cooperation in today's well, climate? Well, it's kind of hard to hypothesize on what the scandal would have to be to make that happen. Uh, certainly in, in several of the scandals we've looked at, the initial response was to circle the wagons and to sort of protect your own, as it were, Democrats helping out Democrats or Republicans helping out Republicans until it becomes sort of untenable. And then things sort of start to to wane a little bit. Uh, But in terms of a governor, uh, you know, again, the circumstances would have to be exactly right. And uh, it's hard to imagine what they would be to to get that kind of cooperation. Joel, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. Right now, it seems like um, you've got more opposition to uh, cooperation than we've seen in quite some time, both on the federal and oftentimes state level. That's kind of that animosity toward the other party has really trickled down on state legislatures. Uh, so it would have to be a perfect confluence of events. And I'm just I don't know what that would be right now. now Keel, final question for you. What's the lesson in all of this for Tennesseans? Uh, I think uh, voting matters. It, it matters who is in office. Uh, 
Uh, I've been asked many times over the, uh, what, 10 years since my book, The Coup, came out, um, do you think this would happen today? And it's, it's connected to what Joel just said, you know, and, and Eric, that we don't, you know, it's hard to hypothesize, um, as Eric said, uh, what the crime might be that would call forth this kind of uh, response. Um, but, but it, you know, it, it, the lesson of history is that uh, stuff happens, you know, and, and things go wrong um, and, and people, uh, you know, and corruption happens. And so I would like to think that who, um, you know, the, the present day office holders might rise to the occasion in this way. My concern uh, about that is that what, what the two things that make the big difference now in our elected leadership, particularly at the state capitol, is, first of all, extremism mm. and the fact that uh, everything seems to be in response to a national political agenda, in this case, the National Republican Party. And we can pin that on whoever we want to. Uh, certainly, uh, Donald Trump has had a big impact on that, and he wants to be president again. So, um, But I think the capacity of these individuals who were in this story in 1979 to set aside pure partisanship um, and, and do what needed to be done is an extraordinary case study and that it, um, uh, you know, but, but it matters who we vote for. And that's without even getting to the notion of gerrymandering, which they've also done. That's a whole In the nother, modern era, a whole other show. It's <laughs> a whole other show. I want to thank you, my guest, Keel Hunt. He's the author of Coup, The Day the Democrats Ousted Their Governor, Put Republican Lamar Alexander in Office Early, and Stopped a Pardon Scandal. Keel, it's a riveting book. Thank you so much for being with us and telling us that story. Thank you, Khalil. Eric Shelzig and Joel Ebert will stick with us through the break. We had, when we come back, we'll learn about some of the other political scandals that rocked our state. One even goes back to 1797. Get your popcorn ready. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kelowna, and this is Nashville. Political scandals are nothing new. As long as there's power to be wielded, some people will choose to use that power for self-serving purposes. It's the risk we take when electing lawmakers and officials. We trust that they'll do the right thing. But when that trust is misplaced or broken, well, as my grandmother used to say, Sugar, we got some things to work out. Now, before the break, we heard about the movie-like scandal involving former R Governor Ray Blanton. Now, let's take a look at some of the other political scandals in our state's history. For that, we're joined again by Eric Shelzig and Joel Ebert, the co-authors of Welcome to Capitol Hill, 50 Years of Scandal in Tennessee. Gentlemen, thanks again for being with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Okay, so you both got the hist into the history of the scandals for the state. Eric, what led you both to write about these stories? Well, to some extent, it was uh, the folly of the pandemic. We thought we'd have all kinds of time on our hands. And uh, as it turned out, uh, it was a lot of work to do this. But uh, we, we basically decided it was time to uh, try to, you know, put together some of the stories we had covered ourselves as statehouse reporters in Nashville and also the stuff that came before us. 
uh, and basically immortalized that so people could know what happened before in the past before they go do it again. How many scandals did you find? Uh, very many. <laughs> uh, we sort of had to decide to narrow it down to essentially five or six. Uh, and then we included a, an appendix at the back of the book that's called uh, Lawmakers Behaving Badly to uh, sort of list some of the, the lesser scandals over time that still need to be uh, be chronicled as well. So you narrowed them down. Joel, how did you choose which ones to use in the book? Well, there's obvious ones, right? So the the first one, is, we kind of go in chronological order, and we begin with Ray Blanton. Uh, just seemed to be, of course, fitting to follow up Keel's book and kind of go into the, the history of Blanton a little bit more, too. Um, and then we knew we had to hit the highlights of some of these major investigations. So one of them is Operation Rocky Top, which was a uh, federal investigation into lawmakers, um, uh, bingo operations, essentially a legal bingo. Another one was um, uh, Tennessee Waltz, which was a major event that occurred in uh, 2005. And so we kind of knew we had to mix those older ones and then also kind of uh, fit in the more recent ones mm -hmm. uh, that we both personally covered. Uh, and so it was actually kind of a nice break where we had several featuring uh, Democrats as targets and then several at the end that were Republicans. So bipartisan corruption. Yes, it <laughs> happens. You know, one of the oldest scandals you found goes way back to the state's first year of actually being in the United States, 1797. Can Eric, real quick, tell us who was involved and what happened. Let me hand it off to Joel. He actually wrote off wrote <laughs> okay. up most of that. It was, it was actually William Blunt. So he's a U.S. senator at the time. And uh, he was one of the, the founders of the state. And uh, he has this idea that he has land off of uh, the Mississippi River. And he is going to sell it in, in some capacity and make a profit for it. Uh, eventually, it was found out that this was uh, going to pen potentially benefit him. And the U.S. Senate, you know, reacts with uh, a decision to expel him. And he's actually the first member of the U.S. Senate to be expelled. Uh, and this is before, uh, you know, there was any real prospect of, uh, you know, is this, uh, you know, is it, should we send him to prison or something like that? Mm. So this goes down and he ends up being hailed in the state. He comes back to Tennessee and he later joins the legislature, which is, uh, you know, quite a difference of reaction between the feds and the state. There's a county named after him. Right? Yes. Yes. So he gets, he gets impeached yep. by the Senate. Yep. And back home, he gets a county named after him. Was this like the first test of impeachment in the Constitution? I believe it was, yes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's something. Okay, so we're going to move on to those not-so-humble beginnings to something that happened in the 80s. You mentioned it, the Rocky Talk scam scandal. What were the goods? What happened there? Uh, so basically, um, there was an investigation after uh, there was a tip to Randy McNally, who is now the lieutenant governor, um, but he was a, a low-level lawmaker at the time, a Republican. Uh, again, Democrats had the super major or the majority at that point, and uh, they were there was a, a tipster essentially saying there's something not right about uh, bingo charitable bingo in Tennessee. Um, basically, you were allowed to have um, gambling in some sense in Tennessee as long as it was for quote charity purposes. Uh, McNally started. To, to sniff around and ended up giving uh, a suggestion uh, to the FBI after he was bribed by um, uh, essentially a, uh, a member of the, the Tennessee bingo operations. Okay. Uh, and it was just this long, complex scandal that had multifaceted tentacles that went into the Secretary of State's office. Uh, you saw a couple people end up um, committing suicide.
side as the investigation unfolded. And eventually several uh, lawmakers ended up going to prison uh, for their roles in this this scandal. How much money are we talking about? Uh, McNally, the initial bribe was three hundred dollars. Uh, wow. and, and then there were further bribes that uh, exceeded that, I believe, in the $10,000 range. Um, but, you know, $300 to kind of secure a lawmaker at the beginning is, as he said, very not, not very much money. No, not much money at all. So what's the fallout from all this? Well, I mean, in this instance and in, in several of the ensuing scandals, we see a reaction among lawmakers to try to clamp down a little bit on ethics rules. Uh, usually as little as necessary, but uh, as much as, as possible. Uh, and then ine- inevitably it feels like uh, enthusiasm tends to wane uh, and emotions get more lax. And then we have another scandal about a decade later. And this is sort of the repeat we see over and over again. Um, so, you know, vigilance tends to tends to wane and, and, and evil doing uh, resumes. Rises again. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about our state's history with political corruption with writers Eric Shelzig and Joel Ebert. You can share your comments at This Is Nashville. Okay, so we're moving into some of the 21st century scandals now. One that we covered here on WPLN, it involved former state house speaker Glenn Cassida. Eric, remind us of what he's been accused of. Well, we have sort of two chapters on him, or sort of spills over into another one. The, f- the first one is about his, his rise to power and and then his precipitous fall, uh, where he was caught up in a, in a racist and sexist text messaging scandal with his chief of staff, and was basically drummed out of the speakership. The first one in something like 125 years not to finish his term as speaker of the Tennessee House. Mm. Uh, once he left office, uh, he and this former chief of staff uh, were indicted for allegedly running a, a sort of a shell corporation, a political vendor called Phoenix Solutions, and tr- selling services to the state legislature to sell to, to uh, produce and mail a political mail and, and, and surveys and, and, and correspondence. Um, basically, the, the Fed said that they were involved in a, a bribery and kickback scheme, and, uh, and, and they're now awaiting trial. The trial was supposed to happen uh, in October. Uh, and just last week, the, uh, the the feds and the and the defendants sort of motioned for a delay, and they're going to delay that till the spring, it looks like. All right, so we'll find out what happens with that later on. Now, in his first ouster, I understand that his party mates did not really rally to support him the way that we would expect, right? He, I think he sort of expected it, too. I mean, that, you know, he... When this sort of text messaging scandal erupted, he went on talk radio and said, this is just locker room talk and sort of trying to channel Donald Trump a little bit and said, there's nothing else to come out. And uh, unfortunately for him, uh, my colleague Joel Ebert and and others, the Tennessean, uh, sort of covered various ensuing scandals that sort of made it untenable for him. And I'll hand it off to Joel to... Yeah, I, I mean, he basically got in power his own, right? Mm. So uh, he took members that didn't vote for him of his own party and punished them by putting them in odd places, uh, literally in, in uh, uh, the office suites that they have in the Cordell Hall building. Um, he did not embrace, you know, all aspects of the caucus. So he just really wanted uh, to have Republicans kind of his close circle uh, rally around him. And when the, the, you know, rubber met the road, ultimately there was enough, uh, you know, facing lawmakers that they weren't going to stand behind him. And so they held a no confidence vote. And uh, it definitely came out as a surprise, I would say, for uh, a party that normally was pretty unified. Now, there's another lawmaker, Jerry. Jeremy Durham, 
um, who is a former member of the House who sexually harassed 22 women. At least. What's his story? <laughs> um, so Durham was in office uh, from um, like around the 2013 era. Um, fast forward to about 2016 and actually my first week on the job mm. at the Tennessean, um, there is a vote of whether they want to continue to keep Jeremy Durham in um, his leadership position. He was a Republican whip at the time. He was sort of seen as an up and coming uh, political leader for the Republicans. Um, but unbeknownst to many members of the party, he was uh, quietly or not so quietly around the Capitol, um, uh, you know, advancing or attempting to advance uh, sexually on, on lobbyists, uh, staffers, et cetera. Um, our reporting initially found a, a few women who he had sent late night text message to that were, you know, sexual in nature. Uh, that kind of blew the cover off of what was a, an open secret within the, the Capitol. And then eventually, um, it, you know, the attorney general leads an investigation and finds uh, that he uh, harassed at least 22 women. I understand that his actions gave you all the idea for the book's title, book title, right? That's true. The, uh, the, the AG's re, uh, report that came out uh, quoted an unnamed uh, woman in the case saying that she had complained to Durham and said, you know, this isn't right. You know, the, you're, you're married and, and, and you know, and I, I don't know if she was an intern or a lobbyist or whatever. And he said, don't worry about it. You know, welcome to Capitol Hill. That's just the way things wow. are here. Um, Ron Ramsey, who was the Senate speaker at the time, sort of recoiled at this and says, when I hear that sort of talk, welcome to Capitol Hill, it makes me want to smack him in the mouth. Mm. And, uh, and, and for Durham, that was, uh, you know, that's when his support started to wane as well. He thought people would sort of rally around him and they didn't. Mm. And, uh, and he ended up uh, getting ousted from the, from the house. Uh, and at the time was just the second member to be thrown out of the state house since the civil war. Of course, we've had three thrown out since, or, or two thrown out since mm -hmm. three attempts uh, just last year. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to get, we only, I have about like maybe three some minutes left. And I know it's pretty crazy. This is an intense scandal, but I do want to talk about the Tennessee Waltz. Can you, as briefly as you can, break that down for us? Well, the, the, the FBI heard about uh, corruption within the, the, the Democratic caucus, both the House and the Senate, and essentially set up a, a sting operation uh, with a fake company. And uh, called eCycle, and and they and they set out to basically bribe lawmakers to pass legislation on their behalf, and then while they were handing over the cash or having their agents do so, they 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 filmed they videotaped us, and and there's video of basically five former lawmakers, now former lawmakers, accepting cash bribes uh, for this company, and they all went to prison. Now, who are some of the lawmakers who were who got caught up? The, the chief one, the, excuse me, the chief one, the biggest one is uh, Senator John Ford, who is this very sort of gregarious and flamboyant lawmaker, longtime lawmaker who delighted in driving down I-40 at 100 miles an hour and hmm. was once charged with shooting a gun at a trucker and was acquitted. Um, and, you know, was flouted ethics every, at every turn and, and sort of made a career out of this until it all came tumbling down in this in this scandal. Now, Ford's actions, I hear, impacted his son's chances for statewide political office. His nephew, actually, uh, Harold Ford Jr., was running for, for, for Senate and, and lost to uh, Bob Corker in what was a very tight race that year. He lost by less than three points. And uh, his family certainly had an had a effect on that. OK, now, you know, I'd love for both of you to answer this as we kind of look at the state's history. We got these interesting people. We have these political scandals and these misdeeds. What should we as Tennesseans be thinking? 
I would say, you know, one of the important things is to remain ever vigilant and skeptical of who's in office, right? Um, political parties have a way of often um, trying to flex their muscles just for the sake of power, right? And and we as voters have the ability to hold them to account. And we shouldn't be blinded by that a party affiliation because when that happens, that's when you see uh, parties that don't care about, you know, uh, stepping over a boundary. So I think that's an important thing. Uh, also, you know, if you don't like who's in office, you can run for office, right? So mm. uh, it, it, this book can be a motivator in, in two ways, I would say. Eric. Well, I would agree. I, I, the thing that we found is, is this isn't a Democratic problem and it's not a Republican problem. It's it's usually a, a, the arrogance of power that, that does in uh, these people that we've covered in, in, in various cases. So, uh, you know, a lot of times we see the same responses in, in to a scandal trying to circle the wagons and it's a lot of times misplaced. You both are journalists. Our guest in the previous segment, Keel Hunt, worked as a journalist. Is it important that we have more jur journalists out there covering government, covering the courts, covering these systems so that people can stay informed? Well, in an ideal world, yes, of course. You know, the more the, the, the better. Uh, I'm not sure how realistic that is anymore. But I think hopefully uh, for journalists going forward, people tend to, you know, focus on the, the question of the day and the, and, the, and the turn of the screw. And sometimes it's time to take, to take a step back and look at the bigger picture and see what else is going on behind the scenes, which Joel did a lot for the Tennessean and, and, and a lot of the material that we got for our book came from that. And I do think, that, you know, the, the book really does highlight the value and the importance of, of journalism, right? One scandal we didn't even touch upon uh, today is uh, Brian Kelsey, who just got sentenced to 21 months in prison. He's a Republican. And that indictment very much mirrors reporting that I did at the Tennesseans. So. Wow. I want to thank my guests, Eric Shelzig and Joel Ebert. They're the co-authors of Welcome to Capitol Hill, 50 Years of Scandal in Tennessee. It's a good book, y'all. Thank you both for coming on and sharing this important history with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Cleo. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Char Datston. Our senior producer is Steve Harouche. Michaela Elias is our technical director. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Alona. We're going to keep it honest and see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>